Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play. This is Madeline, host of the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, we have a panel of guests covering the intersection of LGBT plus communities and aging. I am lucky to be joined by three individuals known for their work in this field, Reverend Harry Hardigan, Phil Duran, and Anne Hodson. Thank you all for joining me. I will give you each the chance to introduce yourself and tell us how you are connected to the LGBT plus and aging community. I am Reverend Harry Hardigan. I am a gay man. I do a great deal of work in the um, LGBT community. I support people at Pride Institute. Uh, I'm one of the founders of the Let's Do Lunch group at Friends and Co. and Rainbow Health. And um, I have done work in various settings, so um, that's who I am. My name is Ann Hodson. I am a transgender woman, and I have been working to train uh, and educate people around transgender identities and issues for close to 25 years now. And I am also a co-coordinator of a trans and non-binary elders support group. Excellent. And I'm Phil Duran. He, him, his. I'm the Director of Advocacy and Community Engagement at Rainbow Health. We're a nonprofit based now in downtown Minneapolis. And our aging initiative is part of the, the community engagement piece that we do. We, we touch on some public policy work around aging, uh, but then also we partner on the lunches that, uh, that Harry mentioned in a number of other events uh, that hope to address isolation among LGBTQ older adults. Wonderful. Thank you again to all of you for being here. Let's start with a basic understanding of the intersection of these communities. What are some of the unique challenges faced by LGBTQ plus older adults? How does the intersection of ageism and homophobia and transphobia change potential discrimination? One of the things, isolation, loneliness, the solo seniors, is a huge challenge today, especially in the LGBT community. We've seen it over and over again. It's, it's um, making community connections. Medical issues seems to bring people the greatest amount of challenge. And how we speak about older folks, I'm terrible about it, right? Because I'm an older folk. I'm 75 and I joke about, I have a friend, I used to call him the crabby old man. I don't do that anymore because it's very derogatory. And how we speak about each other and how other people speak about us, we're a value to the society. They just don't realize it. 
in in the work that Rainbow Health does, one of the things that we see is that there is it, there seems to be a reluctance, a fairly broad reluctance among providers of services to older adults to even ask the question about sexual orientation or about gender identity. We had somebody who contacted, for example, the Senior Linkage Line, which is an excellent resource for older adults in Minnesota, with the question, you know, do you have any recommendations of, of nursing homes or whatever the particular facility was that are LGBTQ friendly? And the the staff at Senior Linkage Line had to say, no, we don't, because we don't ask that question. And so the consumer misses an opportunity and providers who want to be recognized, and there are providers who want to be recognized as LGBTQ welcoming, they miss the opportunity to let that be known because we simply don't ask the question. And whether it's just because we don't like the the thought of talking about sexuality uh, among older adults, I I don't know. But that's a, a uh, a huge barrier is this sort of invisibility of LGBTQ older adults when in these kind of conversations. I think also staying safe in an increasingly hostile environment. It's growing by leaps and bounds almost daily. I see a new story out. One state in particular that has been attacking transgender youth is now including transgender adults in denying them care. So it's it's a scary world more than I think it used to be. Also, there's a lack of education and awareness about LGBTQ identities, and even trained staff at care facilities and even in hospitals and medical clinics turn over. And so they may have trained the entire clinic or the entire care facility, but then they don't do it again. They don't keep it going. They don't make it a regular part of training for their staff. And a lot of trans and non-binary people in particular feel that they're spending way too much time educating healthcare professionals before they even get to the issue as to why they're there. And one of the things, you're right, Ann, and the training is critical. We had training to serve, which did a tremendous amount of training. I just encountered a situation at a facility in Hopkins that the individual who I'm working with a gay man felt that he was being abused because he was a gay man and afraid to say anything. And I had to guess it. And I'm going to give a shout out here to Jones Harrison because they truly are welcoming and they're trying their best to accommodate. They even have a group for LGBTQ folks, which is fabulous. So uh, I, and I was, fortunate to be able to help my friend get from a very unhealthy environment to Jones Harrison. But believe me, it's not easy. The journey, the challenges we encounter with Medicare and Medicaid and all those other things, it's an awful nightmare. I know you are all involved in initiatives to combat some of the issues that you're talking about, what do you see ideally as a broader solution here? Is it just, does it just have to do with education and communication and making sure that this is something that's being talked about or or what else can be done? I would agree to that, but I would also add to it, a lot of people have never met a transgender person. And I think 
actually meeting someone, getting to know who they are as a human being, as a person, it makes a huge difference in how they will react and treat people. And that's true of any marginalized group, not just the transgender community. So I think in addition to the ongoing education of people about trans identities and non-binary identities is the ability to have a connection, a personal connection with somebody that is trans or non-binary and maybe have a conversation with them. And it's knowing that a facility is welcoming and they can do that in multiple ways, but knowing that a facility is welcoming and we have a lot of work to do. We have taken steps back. We talk about a community, but the community is fractured. And we need the support of the entire community, not just parts of the community. Yeah, thanks for adding that, Harry, because that was what was on my mind, is that, you know, my impression is that of the, the LGBTQ communities don't always do a fantastic job with our older adults that you you sort of age out at, at some point, you know, like maybe the first grade here. And then, and then at that point, you know, for all intents and purposes, you, you don't really seem to exist that much within, within our own community. And we need to do our own work, not just to make sure that, you know, the facilities of the world are accessible to LGBTQ older adults, but that our own community recognizes not just that, you know, we have young people, but we also have old people and they have, sometimes they have similar needs and sometimes they're quite distinct. So there's, there's work for us to do as well. And this is something that you've already referenced, but statistically we know that transgender individuals struggle more than their cisgender counterparts in the same age groups. Can you talk a little bit more about what the unique challenges are faced by older adults who are trans? Sure. It's a good question. I think one of the things is finding and keeping community, accessing other individuals with similar needs and experiences is is a challenge as we get older. Because as Phil said, you know, we tend to kind of age out and events are not necessarily aimed at older adults. When I go to Pride, I feel less and less connected because I'm older and I don't feel that there's as much of content there for me. I think also accessing safe and respectful care at the end of life. How safe is the care facility? It's great to know uh, what Harry said about some of the, uh, some places are actually openly supportive. And then questions like, if I go to, into a care facility, how am I going to be placed in a shared room situation? Uh, if a non-binary person doesn't identify as either male or female, how are they going to be placed? Are they going to be placed by their biological sex, their born natal sex? Or are they going to be placed by their gender identity, which may be leaning on the, on the other side? of their natal identity. So there's a lot of lot of concerns and questions. Uh, I was part of a survey called Transgender Aging Project in 2015. And it was interesting. It was a group discussion. We met in person because it was pre-COVID. And some of the people were very adamant about not wanting to go to a care facility and that they would make 
if it's end of life and there's no chance of you know getting better, they would make arrangements to uh, terminate their life before going into a care facility. There's that much fear. That's just, it's heartbreaking to hear. Are there current resources available out there that can help specifically for trans individuals given this group seems to be particularly isolated or I'm assuming uh, mostly that there are resources that are lacking? Well, there isn't a lot. And uh, I'm part of the trans non-binary elders group and we have a Zoom call once a month and we also are looking to meet in person uh, now that we're mostly past or COVID is kind of settled into a part of our lives that we hopefully know how to avoid. And then there's another group too, senior transgender people, and we meet once a week. And we have people from all over the country that are part of that group, but it's still a, a small group. And how do we reach other people? Don't know. Because if people don't feel that they are included in events or welcome at events, they're not going to show up if we table at Pride and nobody goes there uh, because they don't feel it's for them anymore. So finding people that have spent most of their life trying to blend in and told that that they're not transgender now because they've fully transitioned have a challenge in finding community as they get older. Yep. I'm, I'm really happy that there is a small group of trans older adults who attend the the semi-monthly lunches that Harry referred to that Rainbow Health and um, Friends & Co. host here in Minneapolis. I, I'm glad about that. Last year, uh, Rainbow Health sponsored an event called the All Gender Health Conference, and it was uh, at the University of Minnesota, and we'll be doing it again in October over at Mitchell Hamlin. But last year we had a, an older adults track, and one of the folks who was there was Rena Shetty. She's the executive director of um, Age Friendly Minnesota for for the state, which is it's a state agency. And it was an opportunity to do a little bit of a listening session with trans older adults, so that as that body uh, works with the board on aging and others to develop Minnesota's state plan on aging for the for the next several years, that voices of trans older adults uh, are are definitely a part of that. And, and, you know, I think if, if people know a little bit about my legal background, they know that I'm very passionate about transgender uh, legal issues and other issues. And I've been working on that for, for a bit now. And so I bring that into the work that I do now at Rainbow Health around aging and to make sure wherever I can to make that, that the, the conversations we're having, the, the events we're having and so on uh, are, are trans welcoming, trans inclusive. Not perfect. I wish I was, but not. And the work continues. Well, and the interesting thing, Phil, and you mentioned it, it's the lunches. It took us a lot of years to get the trans community to feel they could come to those lunches. For a long time, it was LGB and no T. And so it took a long time to get there. And I think we've started to build a trust, but it took it took a long time. And we're seeing more and more people come out, but there's something missing. There's a piece of community missing where we support each other. We talk about a lot of it, but we're not getting there, right? We keep missing. And somehow my life has become crisis driven. Which one has the crisis today? Who needs the help today, 
right? And it, it's in all spectrums. It's not only um, in the transgender community, and, and we have a lot of work to do in the trans community. There's no doubt about that. But, in, and, but we have equally amounts of work to do in the gay, lesbian, bisexual part of the community and the other folks that, however they may identify. We got to get a little, we got to move, right? The, the elders are getting elder. They are getting elder. I'm one of them. I'm 75 years old and I'm still trying to advocate. And I've been advocating since it came out a long time. Gen X, I'm right behind you there, Harry. So I know you are, buddy. <laughs> full of all these problems in the next few years for me, okay? I'm trying I'm trying to clean it up for you, bud. I know this was something we in- initially talked about a little bit, but I'm curious to hear more about relationships to the healthcare system. So obviously current older adults grew up in a time when LGBTQ plus identities were not accepted nearly as to the degree that they are now. And thinking about the trauma surrounding the HIV AIDS epidemic as well, how have these things affected the relationship of LGBT older adults to the healthcare system? My impression is that it has contributed to a reluctance to share information about sexual orientation or gender identity if they don't have to. You know, if someone, if a, if a man co- goes to the doctor and they say, are you married? Yes. What's your spouse's name? Tom. Well, okay, then you pretty much just come out. If someone has had gender affirming surgery, you know, we we know that there are transgender men in our community who have uteruses. They may still need gynecological care. I mean, that's so, so you can't necessarily hide these things, but I think there's a, a real sense that if, if there's not a need, a critical need to reveal one's sexual orientation or gender identity, people often won't. They'll often think, well, that's, that's not the doctor's business or, or anything like that. And, and yet one of the things that we know is that there is this, this concept out there that's called minority stress theory. And there's a, a an application of that within the LGBTQ world, which in, in essence, and in boiling it way down is, is saying that if you are marginalized in some fashion, in some significant way, and that produces an ongoing level of stress in your life, that can ultimately contribute to significant health issues as you age. And for your doctor to not know that this is a possible thing in your life means your your doctor may not recognize the warning signs that there's something going on that needs attention. And so it, it can it can actually result in in worse health situations and more crisis situations as opposed to uh, people engaging on, a, on an ongoing basis with their doctor and just being you know open about here's here's what here's what's going on in my life and then the doctor being able to say okay well in that case here are some things I need to be taking into consideration and I think one of the things that we see is that older adults seem to not want to take responsibility or advocate for themselves and speak out and say you know hey doc I'm a gay man I'm a lesbian I'm transgender, right? Because you don't know the response you're going to get. I get my health care at the VA. The VA has become very LGBTQ focused. You'll see their lanyard, a rainbow, in clinics, right? Where they give us clues. But I don't want to play games, right? I want to be able to say to my provider, 
right? I'm a gay man and here's what I need. And when you deal in that, Phil, you know the crowd I hang with, right? <laughs> and, and it's challenging some days. They don't want to address the issue. For some reason, there's such great fear. They don't want to address the issue. I just had an experience. I, I can't tell you how disturbing it is to know that somebody I know was in a facility that was hostile to an individual who is part of the community. I could feel it when I was there, but he wasn't saying it. He didn't tell me until after we got him moved. The fear is great. I live in a senior building. When I moved into this building, I hung the gay flag on my door. I'm in a very conservative area of Dakota County. And I could hear them outside the door going, what is that? Somebody educated them. I didn't have to do it. I think also a little common sense goes a long ways. I had a recent experience calling my uh, doctor's office, and unfortunately, I had to change physicians this year. And so I'm kind of in a situation where I'm not comfortable yet with the clinic, and I'm not comfortable with the doctor yet, because my previous doctor I'd had for 23 years, 24 years, something like that, and is a well-known physician in caring for the transgender community. So I felt like I was in a good place with that person. And they had to leave the, they were, they left the clinic that they were at. And so I had to find a new physician, a new GP and a new clinic. And I called about a concern I had about something. And the person that was doing the screening started asking me questions based on the assumption that I was still male-bodied. And if they had looked at my chart, it's on there. And so a little common sense about just reading the chart. It's kind of like as a teacher, the information you seek is in the syllabus. Thank you for sharing your experiences. I think it's really important to share examples like that to highlight where the issues really lie. Because we have so much important information from Anne, Phil, and Harry, we decided to split our conversation into two episodes. So we will end this episode here, but be sure to subscribe to Voices of Aging and tune in in two weeks for part two. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Follow Voices of Aging and ASIC on social media for more information about the episodes and guests on the podcast and to learn more about us as a student group. See you next time.